You're listening to the Renovation Church Sermon Podcast. For more information on services and events at our Simpsonville and Greenville locations, visit us online at therenovation.church. Today's message is presented by our Simpsonville teaching pastor, Jason Thompson. Go ahead and open your Bibles today to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Now, I don't know when the last time you read Ephesians 1, but it is some dense theology, all right? There is some, I mean, it's, it's profound, it's interesting, it's awesome, but it's a little bit difficult to understand. But we're gonna break it down this morning. I'm very excited about the points we're gonna pull from it. I'm gonna actually start with uh, verse three. Paul kind of does an introduction to the Ephesians. But let's start with verse three and see what he has to say. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Already, it's like we need to stop and like break this down, all right? All right, so this is saying that God the Father has richly blessed us, all right? In every way, in the heavenly realms, all right? He's blessing us in the heavenly realms essentially because of what Christ did for us. It, through Christ, in Christ, he has given us every spiritual blessing because of Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Again, it's a lot to, to, to break off right there. Now, predestination is a word that weirds people out, all right? And there are a couple of different schools of thought with predestination. Now, there's, there, there's some people, good Christian people, that believe that God just determines everything. Like everything that happens is basically contingent on him pulling the strings on whether he offers grace or doesn't offer grace to people, all right? And they just kind of, everything is kind of predetermined based on that. Now, I do not believe that, all right? That is not my view of predestination. And so here is the the view of predestination, predestination I would love for you to embrace, all right? realize that God is outside of time, all right? We can only think of time as linear. We, we don't understand a being that lives outside of time, that just knows the past, present, and future because he's outside of it and encompasses all of that. We just don't understand that, all right? But God knows everything that is knowable, all right? He knows all things, everything that will possibly happen, everything that you will do in your life, everything that he will do as a result of the things that you do in your life, all right? And so, he knew when he gave us free will and he gave Adam and Eve the choice whether they could eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of evil or not, all right? He, he gave them free will, but he knew what they would do. He was completely just and fair, giving everyone a chance and giving them free will, but he knew what they would do. And based on what they would do, he already established a plan to work all things together for the good of those that choose to love him and are called according to his purpose. So when he says before time began, he, he predestined you, he chose you to become a son or daughter. 
He is saying, based on your free will decision to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and to put your faith in him, he made a plan for you. And that plan was to wipe away your sins, cleanse them, and make you righteous and to adopt you into his family. And this word here in the Greek, I, 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 can't, I can't pronounce it, all right? But it, it's for sonship, it's like huiothesisian, all right? I, I just butchered that, don't worry about it, all right? But this Greek word is a very strong Roman term in, in the law, the Roman law that means that you have heir status. Like you are a true son, you are adopted, but you have the legal status of the chosen heir of this, this lineage, so it's not like you are the redheaded stepchild brought into the family, all right? You are the son and daughter of the king adopted with full legal status and all the rights. That is what this passage is saying. His grace is overwhelming. Verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So basically, he says this is a mystery, but essentially God's grace, his willingness to be a human being, his willingness to come down to earth, it's a mystery that he would be willing to do this, but he did it at the perfect time. And the purpose of that was to bring unity between earth and heaven. That's good news. That is some awesome stuff. And then verse 11. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. See that? Everything's gonna be worked out. In order that we who were the first to put on our hope in Christ and he's talking about the Jews here, all right? We were the first in the, in the early apostles, we were the first to put on our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included, the Gentiles, the following believers in Christ, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. All right, do you wanna know what happens when you're saved? You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. How do you know that you have an inheritance? The Holy Spirit seals you and calls you his and starts manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You cannot have the Spirit without changing radically and living like Christ. And we'll skip ahead now to verse 18. And, he, and Paul is talking to the Ephesians and he, he's like, this is my prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, 
power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That is awesome. He says, I hope that you can realize the hope that you have. I hope that you can realize the calling that you've been called into. If you are a child of God, you've been called into this glorious hope that is fueled by the power of Jesus Christ, by the, fueled by the power that raised Christ from the dead and sat him in the heavenly realms of the right hand of the Father. And all dominion and all power is given to him and under him. And he is the head of the church and we are the body. We are the church and he is filling the church with himself. And we are all supposed to be an extension of that body serving this glorious God. And we have that power inside of us. So why don't we live that way? Why don't we act like we're called to do ministry? It's because we believe the lies of the enemy. We swallow them. And for many of us, those lies we swallowed happened at church. When I was in my late 20s, my first marriage ended in divorce. My, life, my wife left me for another man. And I remember just being so devastated. I, all I could do was just cling to the Father. I prayed all the time. I studied all the time. I read scripture all the time. I read articles about how to, how to recover from this, how to, how, to, how to go get closer to God. And I felt his presence and I felt him working in me and through me. And I started getting this, this passion for teaching the word even more so than I already had even previous to divorce. But in my mind, I was really wrestling with this idea that here I had all, I felt like I had all this potential and I had this desire to serve God, but now I was disqualified and worthless to him. I mean, no one, I had never heard of a divorced pastor or elder or deacon or anything like that. I, I seriously struggled with the fact because my church asked me to, to teach a Bible study to like the college and career. And I struggled with that. Like, am I allowed to do this? Can I do this? Wrestled with it. And about a year into that, my, my pastor asked me to lunch and sat me down. He says, Jason, I want you to join my staff. And, and this, is, these are, this is my exact words. I, I said, as what? In my mind, I'm thinking, is he asking me to leave my teaching position to come be the janitor? Like the facilities manager? Like I have no handyman skills. If you've seen my house, it's not clean, all right? Like what, like, what do you want me to be? And so I'm, I'm picturing, you know, cleaning toilets and going out and mowing the lawn for them. And I'm like, and he's like, I want you to be our discipleship pastor. Have you lost your mind? I, a past, I can't be a pastor, I'm divorced. And here, God is calling me into ministry. Uh, my most trusted spiritual mentor, and my pastor is telling me, he believes that God is saying, join his staff. And I told him, 
you're crazy. I didn't even consider it. I went back and said, that's, that's wild and, and ridiculous and not from God. It can't possibly be from God. And God continued to work on my heart and continued to give me various confirmations. And I, began, I, I continued to study. And I started seeing some really interesting things in Scripture. Now, I, I, I want a, an actual survey here. I want you to raise your hand. How many of you have heard the, ver, the verse, I hate divorce, says the Lord? Has anybody heard that verse? Raise your hand. All right, a few, not everyone, all right? That verse comes from Malachi 2.16. I want to show it to you on the screen. This is in the NLT. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. And I only remember the first part, but I remember it very clearly because it was said over and over again in, in the church environment, in the religious environment I grew up in. And it was like, I hate divorce, says the Lord. And it was a blanket statement. And, and, and you can't help but think no matter what the situation, no matter how you ended up divorced, that God hated that and by extension possibly hates you. That's how you felt. And so you have all this condemnation. And so everything that people said about divorce after that was kind of, it just seemed justified because I mean, God said, I hate divorce. Now, I want to show you the same verse in the ESV translation. Let's read, let's read this one. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves and your spirit and do not be faithless. That's pretty significant change, right? What's going on here? I want to show you one more. I think that this next one, the NIV, is, is probably the best translation of this. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. I'll show all three verses at the same time now. So how do you get such different messages. And I, I don't want to shake your confidence in, in scripture. Please know that we, with the mountain of textual evidence that we have from, from manuscripts in the Greek and the Hebrew, with 99.5% with certainty, 99.5% of the Bible, we are not confused at all about what was originally intended, all right? But there's about 0.5 there where there's just a, a few minor errors copied down over time or a few additions. There's also, it is really difficult to take ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew and put it in modern English. And some passages are very hard to understand, especially because Hebrew doesn't use a lot of uh, prepositions and conjunctions and articles and stuff like that. So this is a passage that's very hard to decipher. But... I know that for I hate divorce, says the Lord, is wrong, okay? Because in the translation, in the word, there's a word, the Hebrew word, sene, all right? And it literally translates, it's, it's a third person verb, third person masculine noun. So it has to be translated he, he hateth. He hates, that he hates is a literal translation, all right? So to say I hate divorce and put that in first person, it, it, it's just wrong. There is no first person in that verse. So why is it translated that way? 
Well, the issue is that whenever God says, thus says the Lord, or the Lord says, he always follows that with, I, I will do this. I will redeem my people. I will make a way. He never talks to himself in the, about the, himself in the third person. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord, he will go and do something, all right? He always, so, so they have this context. They're like, well, it, maybe it's supposed to be I, like it, everywhere else it says this. Other translations say he hates divorce, and it, but it still makes it out that the Lord is saying this. But again, that makes no sense because he doesn't talk to himself in the third person. These other two translations, I believe, gets it right. And so all these people living under condemnation for any kind of divorce being like God, God hates it is because of bad teaching. It's even stranger to act like this is the best translation of this where in Jeremiah 3, God very clearly says that he gives a bill of divorce to Israel. He says, because of all of your infidelities, for your many transgressions, I wrote out a bill of divorce and gave it to you and sent you away. So how is God going to characterize himself as divorcing Israel if he hates divorce and we treat divorce like it's a sin in every context? That seems a bit odd. And then you go to the New Testament and see how, uh, how teachers have twisted the New Testament. Now, Jesus in the New Testament has some very strong message on divorce, and this is very important. We need to take his words, own them, and embrace them fully. He was correcting a real problem in the ancient world that is still a real problem in the modern church, all right? This idea of just divorcing for any reason, for any cause, a, essentially a no-fault divorce. Because during Jesus' time, they were getting divorced for anything. Like, your wife burns your food, give her a divorce, all right? She lets herself go a little bit, give her a divorce. She's nagging you with questions, divorce. Then this was, this was allowed, this was encouraged. And so women had to live in fear of being sent out and not being able to provide for themselves. So they just, they were not living the equal status that a marriage is supposed to have that Ephesians shows because of this terrible cultural thing about divorce. Today, it's a little bit different. Just this, this divorce for any reason more has to do with happiness. I'm not happy. I should be, I should be able to get divorced. And Jesus is, is, is making it very clear how strongly he is about this. And he says, all right, if you get divorced for any reason other than fornication, sexual sin, then you are, if you move on from that and, and, and leave her and move on to another spouse, you're committing adultery. That's heavy. Committing adultery. And so he, he puts this on us. But what's interesting and what I've seen in the church is they have, have made it out that there is no exception. You should never get divorced for any reason. Even when Jesus teaches that there is one qualifier, there's one exception in here, they're like, you should not get divorced for any reason. And when I was growing up in church, like it was like murder and then divorce and then drunkenness down here. Like that's how it is. And if I'm being honest, if we're being honest too, you could make an argument that those should be reversed, like divorce and then murder. Because you could murder someone, spend your time in jail, come out, show repentance, and you could become a pastor. 
And that would be an awesome testimony. Look at this murderer. Look at this testimony. Oh, this guy is awesome. But if you got divorced, repented, I'm sorry, you're forever disqualified, all right? And so it's interesting, like how we portrayed this. And Jesus doesn't say anything about what should happen if for the people that committed adultery by remarrying. He doesn't say they're cut off, but our teaching is that they're cut off. And that's not even the only exception that is mentioned in Scripture. There's another passage in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, before you think this is a lenient passage, it's not, if you read it in context. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul lays it on really thick. He says, if you, you have two believers, there's no excuse not to work it out. All right? If you have two believers, stop being selfish, live like Jesus, love each other, come back together and reconcile. And if you do separate... Don't remarry because you need to get your heart right and then come back to this, all right? But then he says, but let's talk about if you're in a marriage to someone that is a non-believer. If you are married to a non-believer and they do not wanna be with you and they show through their actions they're not willing to move forward with this marriage because you're now a believer, then you can leave. Then, then you can let that divorce happen and you can move on. And the word used there, this word free, that you are free, is like a legal term of like emancipation from slavery. You are unbound. Move forward with your life. And I, I could see these two exceptions because one, you're dealing with all the baggage of, of infidelity on the one exception, right? And, and let me just say right up front, all right? That does not mean that if, you, if you, there's infidelity in a marriage that you need to immediately just cut it off and not try to restore that, all right? I, am all, I, I love it when people act like Jesus and are willing to work with an unfaithful spouse because that's really, Jesus did it over and over and over again, all right? And so I, that, is, that is close to the heart of Jesus and, 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 and if you are, are willing to do that hard path, then God bless you, that is, that is pleasing to God. You need to go to the Lord and, and ask which way you should go with that, all right? But you can, I can understand this other exception is very important. It is really hard to do marriage with someone when you have two entirely different worldviews. One, you are trying to live for Jesus Christ. You are trying to live for the next life. The other person is living for this life and living for themselves. That is bound to be a lot of clashing right there. So if they're willing to be understanding of you in your pursuit of Jesus and still wanna be married, then stay married. Paul's very clear on that. But if this person is like, oh, I'm not gonna live that way and I'm not, I'm not gonna treat you right and I, I want a divorce because you're this weird Christian person, then, then you're free to go. So God gives us these two protections so that we can serve him freely and be better followers of Christ for him. And yet the church heaps condemnation on them. But if you have two believers, there shouldn't be divorce. You should keep working it out. You should bring the church into it and, and, and let us help you restore that and come to a place. Now, this is not really the point of the message at all, but I feel the need to address this because this, this very rarely gets addressed. There's one other thing that people throw out there about, well, is it okay to get a divorce in this situation, all right? And that is, well, what if 
Are, are you telling me, Jason, that if, if I have a, a alcoholic, abusive husband, I should just stay? I should just stay and get beaten and my, wife, and my kids should get beaten and, and just because, you know, divorce is wrong in any other stipulation and that he's not technically cheating, then I should stay? Hear me very carefully. No. All right, if you are in an abusive situation, leave immediately. Get to a safe place. Alert the authorities if that is appropriate. Then call us. Let us love you through this process. Let us go to that person, that abusive person, and try to get him to repentance. And I, and I will tell you, that'll be a long restoration process. If you've shown an abusive pattern, then you need to show radical repentance and change before they, you bring in a family into that abusive, formerly abusive situation. There's, that is gonna be a long process. And if that person is, refuses to listen to the church, refuses to show radical change, refuses to be repentant, and I got news for you, that is not a believer. You cannot be abusive by nature and rebellious to the church's authority and think that you are a believer. I am 100% with John on this. He says, if you say that you are a believer, but you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, let alone your own spouse and kids, the truth is not in you, you're a liar, all right? And so, but, back to where we're going. But if you are believers, you should be able to work it out. You should put Christ first. You should put your spouse second. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But how, when we have people that actually qualify for the two exceptions in scripture, how are we gonna make them feel like second class citizens? How are we gonna kick them to the curb? But now I'm gonna take it a step further because that's not what really makes me mad. Let me tell you what really makes me mad. When we take people who have done it the wrong way, we take people who got a divorce for the wrong reasons and have remarried, and now they're attending church, they're getting excited about the church, and we treat those people like they can never get to this upper status. They are second-class citizens kicked to the curb, relegated to the sidelines. How can we read this book and come away with that kind of theology? How? Look at the people Jesus used. Moses was a murderer, redeemed him. Abraham, the person he called to start all of this, his people, his chosen people, was an adulterer and someone who pimped out his wife to various kings twice. Then you got David, a man after his own heart, probably the most encouraging person in scripture, really, if you have, if you have any kind of sin problem, because he did them all. Think about this. Here is a man who commits adultery and then murders the husband. And then afterwards, God uses this man to write not one, not two, but four psalms that are in this book. What could you possibly do for the church 
that would be more impactful than literally writing the words of God. And God chose David to do that. Then you have Paul, murderer. You have the woman at the well, married five times, living with another guy, uses her to be an evangelist to that town. How many stories do we need of God's willingness to redeem people? And just in case we weren't clear of how he viewed people that sinned in the past but chose to repent, then we have the story of the prodigal son. This is amazing. He left God's house, went away and lived his own way doing all kinds of ungodly things came back fully embracing this idea that he was only good enough to maybe be a servant and lucky to get into that house. And God the Father ran to this man, ran to him, put a robe around his shoulders and a signet ring on his finger and said, this is my cherished son. He is back. He was not a second-class citizen. He was not a servant. He was a son. And I don't care what sin you've committed, if you repent of that sin, then you are back on track to be used by God. And there is no glass ceiling for you as a child of God. You you don't understand. God the Father is not upset with you. He loves you and he just wants you to come back. He loves showing mercy and grace. It's why he set this whole plan in motion in the first place. And from the very beginning, he knew every sin you commit. He knew the sins that you would commit before he called you to become a child of God. He knew the sins that you would commit after he called you to be a child of God. And he already made a plan to redeem every situation that you screwed up. And he loved doing that. And he wants to use you. So in close, let me summarize my three points for you today. If you are a child of God, you've been called. What have you been called to? We are called to be disciples and to make disciples. You have a twofold purpose to continuously grow and learn more and become a fully formed follower of Christ. And then you are to go and make disciples. And your past sins do not define you and they won't limit you from worshiping and, and following this one true God. He wants to use you to impact other people. Your sins may delay the progress. Your sins might provide setbacks in seasons where you do have to sit back and, and get restored but he is constantly putting you on a path of redemption. He is constantly putting on you plan to be a disciple and to make disciples. And my final point, death. Death is the only end to this calling. Until you breathe your last breath, you are called. So I am challenging you to embrace your calling. You have spiritual gifts that the church needs. We have all kinds of volunteer positions that need filled at this church. Step into serving. Get part of a group. Find a mentor. Find an accountability partner. Pick up your Bible and start reading. I don't know what your next step is, but we would love to help you find it. 
Get with someone from the church that will help you take your next step. Get on the path of being a disciple and making disciples. Embrace your calling, use your gifts, and get plugged in. Because God loves you and he wants to use you. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. We are stubborn and hard-hearted people. But you love us. I'm gonna ask everyone right now that is is currently seated. If you have ever been divorced, I want you to stand up right now. If you have ever been divorced, I want everyone to look around. Look at the people that the enemy is trying to disqualify. I want you to reach out your hands towards someone in this room that's standing. And I want you to pray in agreement with me. Lord, I pray that you will break the chains of the enemy. I pray that all shame will be shedded. I pray that every man and woman in, and child in this auditorium will embrace their calling and be fully used by you. Break every stronghold, every lie that is preventing ministry work and help us to be used fully by God. Help us to go out and be servants of you. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Church, we love you, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Renovation Church Sermon Podcast. Find out more about following Jesus and building his kingdom at therenovation.church.